drive. And I really truly believe that anybody can be successful. It just takes hard work. You're about to embark on a journey where you're going to walk on a lot of glass and eat thorns. I believe that anyone who is a startup is absolutely privileged because they get to leave a legacy behind. They get to actually create something that makes a difference in the world. Welcome to season three of the WeStrive podcast, brought to you by the WeStrive app, where we are the first marketplace for the personal training industry. Search through thousands of fitness plans from hundreds of certified trainers in the app, or sign up as a trainer at WeStriveApp.com. On this podcast, we interview entrepreneurs that are changing the world. We've had millionaire founders, top-level investors, and just some of the most inspiring people that you'll ever meet. Entrepreneurship is all about striving for greatness, and I hope the stories you hear on this podcast inspire you to go out and become a better version of yourself. Now, let's get to the episode. We strive. This week, we have Harold Hughes on the podcast. So shortly after graduating from Clemson, Harold realized that he wanted to completely rewrite the ticketing space. He was upset that so many home fan tickets were sold to the wrong teams, so many fake tickets were being sold around the world, and he was just overall frustrated with the ticketing industry. Fast forward a few years and bandwagonfanclub.com, aka Bandwagon, is absolutely dominating the ticketing industry. The company is now flourishing in the US, and Harold has actually become an angel investor himself, investing in a couple of startups, one of those startups being episode number 52, Farhaj Mayan. I hope you enjoy the episode, learn a couple things about startups, and enjoy Harold's journey. Enjoy the episode. My name is Harold Hughes. I'm the founder and CEO of Bandwagon. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Uh, like I was talking to you before the podcast, uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while now. Uh, I actually, uh, I never really knew about the whole, you know, uh, like startup world in Twitter. And it's really crazy kind of how how big it is. I mean, I feel like every single CEO is going back and forth on Twitter. Um, so it's a, it's a pleasure, to, pleasure to be following you and have you be part of that community and everything. And um, what does what is, what is Twitter mean to you? Like, do you use it as for uh, like business purposes or are you more on there just for fun? Yeah, I think when I first got on Twitter, you know, more than, you know, I guess a decade ago or whenever it launched, I really was thinking about Twitter and I had a personal Twitter and then a professional Twitter. But as, as you know, and as many people know, um, people do business with people that they like and people do business with people that they know. And I felt like having two accounts didn't really give me the opportunity to share what I was interested in outside of work with the folks that I potentially be working with. So when I redid my Twitter, probably in 2014, 2015, I started a new account. Um, I made one account and knew that I was going to be committed to sharing business things as well as personal things. So I may post a picture about an activity that I've done with my son. And then a couple of tweets later, talk about um, the latest R&B album I'm listening to. And then after that, go on a bit of a, a thread talking about hiring um, in challenging times. And so I think that um, Twitter has been a great resource for me, not only to stay connected to the startup community and find investors, but also a great outlet to make you know genuine connections with people I probably never would have met. No, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. I, I have a problem with, with that from my perspective, just because I, uh, sorry, it's it's actually my birthday and I'm getting it like the stupid automatic blue, blue, happy yeah, birthday right. from everyone on the planet, which I didn't, because I, I, there's always been the um, congrats on the new job thing, mm-hmm. and which is the most annoying thing, as you know. Yeah. Um, and I think 
it, this could have been existed before, but uh, I think they added the automatic happy birthday thing this year. Yeah, I think um, they added it in 2019. Yeah, I'm so I'm just like, like there's some of them are like in French and stuff like that. So it's pretty, I'm just going to, I don't know. Actually, how about I just close out of it? Wow, that's a pretty simple solution. Um, anyways, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I have a lot of people that I'm following that are, are that are following me that aren't even close to in the startup world. So I probably should make another account just so I don't annoy them completely. Um, but uh, it, it is really cool to see all like the, you know, the polls and all the uh, the different discussions that, you know, kind of are created on Twitter. Um, and so it, I had never even seen that world at all. And then about like eight months ago, once I honestly, once I followed Farhaj, uh, it was kind of just like he follows everyone. And so okay. I've kind of like jumped into that world. So Oh yeah, uh, that's how, that's yeah. Uh, that's how I met you. So there you go. But uh, yeah, can you give us a quick breakdown of of what Bandwagon is, and then we'll uh, go from there. Yeah. Uh, so when we started Bandwagon in 2014, uh, we were really committed to creating a StubHub competitor. Really, as a sports fan or as a festival or live music fan, I really didn't like the experience that was happening with StubHub with the price gouging, and then also as a fan, you know, from my alma mater, Clemson seeing how home field advantage was pretty much overturned when it was the tickets there because the away fan would buy the ticket. So we created the company in 2014 um, to really help fans protect home field advantage. So our first product was a ticket marketplace that helped fans say, I'm a Clemson fan, I want to sell a ticket to another Clemson fan, or I'm a Georgia fan, I want to sell my ticket to another Georgia fan, in the effort that um, we would help fans create a better uh, live event atmosphere uh, by curating who is going to be sitting around them. So that was really the goal with the main focus being the one thing we all have in common is we're pulling for the same team. So we can be from different backgrounds of different religions, but we're pulling for the same team and therefore we're going to have something in common. So that's how we started. But as we continued to grow, we realized that um, the secondary, the secondary ticket market was extremely segmented and fragmented. Um, and so to really help provide a solution. We didn't need to create another ticketing company. We needed to create a technology company that really helped galvanize and bring that information together. So in 2018, we ended up pivoting to what we are today, uh, which is a fan identity and attendee analytics company um, where we help the ticketed live event industry. So sports teams, festivals, know who's in their venue on the day of the event. And as you can imagine, uh, considering all that's going on with COVID-19, um, we're definitely looking at how our technology can be applied well beyond live events. It was something that was on our product roadmap for 2021, uh, but this has kind of presented an opportunity for us to explore those uh, new avenues um, of partnerships and, and, and customers, um, given how live events have kind of been put on pause um, for a little while here. And so what... um. With with kind of what you just with, with what you just said, uh, what exactly are those types of events like? You know, is it like live, like the ESPN two K tournament? Like, what what kind of events are you referring to with, with all these other big events being closed? Yeah, so we're kind of staying away from the events altogether. I mean, obviously, you know, you've probably been inundated with every call that could have been an in person meeting is now a Zoom call from um, coffee meetings to happy hours, right? So everything is being done online digitally there. So we, we think that there's good coverage um, on that point because when you register for an event, there isn't a change of hands of who is registering and showing up. So if, to paint a picture there, um, when it came to ticketing, on day zero, when the tickets were created and initially assigned to the season ticket holder, the event organizer, let's say that it is the sports team, um, knows who bought that ticket on day zero. But 
over several days as tickets are changing hands on the secondary ticket market, whether it's StubHub or Vivid Seats or some of these other ones, uh, the event organizer doesn't know who's actually going to show up because the tickets change hands on platforms that are not integrated into their solution. So for us, our value proposition was being able to connect the identity of who's actually there uh, because they purchased through a channel that's not authorized with the information that the team has. So that's that's a, a, a that was a big hole. When it comes to online streaming events, whether it's Zoom conferences or uh, some of these uh, webinars, there isn't that challenge because the person who registers is the person who shows up. There isn't a resale market for um, any of these things. And so there's not an identity challenge there. However, we are looking at how we can look at identity overall in connecting online activities, like purchasing something online, uh, using certain apps to help give consumers and fans everywhere uh, more access and control over their data. I mean, if you think about uh, how we've been conditioned uh, here in the United States, especially, we've always had access to our information and rarely have ownership of it. Uh, and so that normally leads us to be in situations where these large corporations who, you know, by and large mean well, uh, tend to kind of drop the ball when it comes to data privacy, the protection of our information, and how we're able to take action with it. So we're looking at how our proprietary tech, including some blockchain, as well as a partnership with a company based out of Estonia called Cybernetica, can really help not only event organizers, um, but a lot of different folks where we're thinking about um, Department of Homeland Security, uh, the NSF, and some other organizations that can really think through how we empower citizens today to have better control over their data. That's very cool, man. And so, so what's a, I mean, I wanted to kind of get into early life and then kind of get to this point, but I'd, I'd rather actually we're on a roll, so whatever, but <laughs> what, a, yeah, so <clears throat> when, you know, when COVID struck and, and I actually, I've interviewed a couple of people like kind of in your space where it's like, you know, ticketing or live events, whether it's like, you know, for, for raves or whatever it is, you know, um, you guys seem to be a lot more, you know, sporting oriented. Um, actually, two questions really quick. First one really quick is, is yours just sports or is it um, kind of all of the above with like a huge focus on sports? Uh, so all of the above. So we focused on any ticketed live event. Um, and so our first customer was Sacramento State. Uh, so we were working with their athletic department. But our second uh, customer was actually a film festival in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and so, yeah, we'll do film festivals, live sporting events. Um, camps, anything that could have a ticket purchased online, and then subsequently the person has to show up in person. That's where we try and connect the dots because you take an online activity like putting in your credit card and email information on a website, and then an offline activity like showing up physically in person, and how do you connect those two dots? Um, so that's step one. And then from there, you're like, well, there are more dots. There are the transaction that you do on concessions, and then there's a transaction that you do when you buy merchandise online. So you get to find that there are lots of activities that go into this and that's where we have opportunity to change. Very cool. And, and so with the second question being, um, you know, once you kind of are, are you're, you're the CEO of the company and once you kind of see that pretty much every single live event, AKA your entire lifeblood is being shut down, like, and obviously now you guys have, we're like a, a month or two into it. So you guys have pivoted. Um, what's your like kind of day one mentality when all this kind of starts just shutting down everywhere? Like, are you kind of, I mean, obviously that's, not a, you're going to be in a great mood. Um, but I mean, are you instantly like, we got to pivot, we got to pivot, or was it kind of just like, a, okay, I'm just going to take a day off and like figure this out kind of a thing? Yeah. So we really just took a step back. I think that one of the things that um, a lot of people think is easy for startups, even early stage startups to do is to pivot. 
Um, it's not something that you can just say, okay, tomorrow we're going to serve this other customer base. Uh, so we really had to take a step back and look at what, what are our core uh, capabilities that we already have built into the product, as well as um, what are we going to see as far as potential customers and how are we going to attack that market? Uh, and so we decided to take a couple of days and say, okay, let's think through this about where is our product today and how far can we, um, how easily can we move this thing um, backwards? And then from there, be able to um, look at other opportunities there. And so um, we're not necessarily considering it a pivot. What we're looking at is saying today, the market that we would focus on is not necessarily there, uh, but we expect it to come back. And I expect live events to come back and be better than ever. Um, so that being said, I think that the big opportunity we're going to have is in the short term, look at how broad our application can be. So when we think about um, what we're actually doing is that we've always just been tracking assets, where in the beginning, that asset was a digital ticket tied to a physical person. Now we're saying, okay, well, what are other digital assets and physical um, attributions that we can connect together? Um, and so instead of us considering it a pivot, we're looking at this being an opportunity to develop a product line um, that really focuses um, on a new area that we can capture today. Very cool. And so, so do you see, no, I, I totally agree with what you said. I, I think live events are, I mean, I'm definitely going to go to a concert once this is over. Like I'm, I'm very excited. I don't even go to a lot of concerts. So like, I'm very excited to like, just go to an event and just actually be around people doing something. Um, right, so right. I think, I think you're right. I think it's going to really be way bigger than before. Yep. Um, and so do you see your company, uh, if, if, you know, hopefully like, you know, you guys make it through this and like, you know, flourish and all that kind of stuff, but do you see your guys' company like once this is over, um, kind of like having more revenue streams and like being a better company because of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about you know we're not in the position to do the whole "I told you so" kind of thing because it's not that's not ever what we wanted to convey. Um, but we do see this as an opportunity. I'm not sure how much you've seen it, but these brokers and some of these secondary ticket marketplaces are shutting down. Uh, considering bankruptcy. Uh, and so there's a challenge and a disconnect there. When you think about the Dallas Mavericks or the Los Angeles Lakers or the New York Giants or any of these different sports organizations, um, they normally have a database of their season ticket holders. But there are a lot of different fans that end up buying on secondary ticket marketplaces that aren't in that database. So when these events come back to life, and I do believe they'll come back, I'm not sure if it'll be this year, but I do believe they'll come back. And I think fans like you, as you, like you mentioned, will be more interested in going out. Um, that team will still only have the database that they initially have from season ticket holders. Uh, and so what we want to find a way to do is to connect the information that they're getting, or excuse me, that they are not getting on the secondary market and aggregate that info so they can take better action on that. And so that's really the core of what we really made our value prop from the beginning. It was that, hey, we know that you have X people, X amount of people in your database, but there are other folks buying on these secondary markets. What if we could get you the information from those places and allow you to engage with them so that you can delight them and deliver a high quality, um, first class, unique experience for them. And so that's really playing more into our value proposition more today than ever. It's just that right now there aren't those events. So I think that when events come back, we'll be able to lean further into that and say, this is an opportunity here to really bring all of that data together. Um, and then of course, we will continue to support the, the customers and the revenue streams that we're creating in these next six months. That's awesome, man. No, I think, I think it's, I think it's gonna be really cool for you guys. I mean, obviously, 
um, not an ideal situation, but um, it's really cool to see all these companies pivoting and, you know, switching to, you know, like a, a networking app and switching to online networking. I mean, it's just so many cool things to see. And so definitely inspiring for myself. I mean, our, our company's online anyways, but it's like, I feel like I should be able to, you know, embrace this and figure out a way that I can make it better too. So very right. cool. Man. So we're, we're going to take a step back. Um, so sure. can you tell us a little bit about like kind of, um, you know, your early life, like where you grew up, uh, you know, were you an entrepreneur growing up selling candy or were you like in the science fair? Like what was your like childhood like? Yeah, definitely. So I was born in New York City, as most uh, first generation Jamaicans are. Uh, my family's from Jamaica and then my siblings and I were born uh, here in the United States. Uh, so there are five of us. I was born in New York City in the 80s. And uh, growing up, we had, you know, pretty much a lot of those first generation challenges from um, food stamps to WIC uh, and all the government assistant programs uh, that kind of helped us stay afloat. Um, my dad um, was an electrician by trade. Um, and my mom um, spent some time in retail. She worked at Rich's before it became Macy's. Um, and now she's actually a business owner herself. Uh, but when I was growing up, we weren't really ever thinking about entrepreneurship. I think that um, you've got some um, immigrants and children of immigrants that do have that entrepreneurial like thing from the very beginning. Um, but for us, it was really go to school, get good grades, get a good job and really provide for your family. And that's, you know, family is in your your spouse and your offspring, as well as, you know, mom and dad and sometimes siblings. Right. And so. Um, that's really how we grew up. Uh, of course, we had those opportunities where we were able to buy, you know, candy in bulk and try and sell them for, you know, 10 cents more, 20 cents more. And so I did that with airheads in the uh, middle school bathrooms and in between classes, trying to, trying to make a quick buck, um, refereeing soccer games to kind of bring in some cash to help out the household. But overall, I was always really just focused on, um, how could I go and make sure that I was going to be in a position to provide, um, for my family. And so in a lot of cases, that was going to be going to school. I went to Clemson University, uh, studied economics and political science with the intention of going to law school, uh, but subsequently found an incredible um, technology company in Greenville, South Carolina, that was my first job out of school. Uh, and I worked there and was like, okay, I'll just stay here and keep grinding at it. Um, and so that's really how, you know, my, my upbringing really was, was focused on like, how do I get access to uh, capital and how do I, you know, contribute to my household uh, and be a supporter. Very cool. And how was your, uh, how was your experience over at Clemson? Clemson was amazing. Uh, I'm, um, I'm first person in my family to graduate um, from college and it was really cool to um, really experience that, uh, that whole thing um, with my brother. I have a brother who followed me and went to Clemson shortly after and then my sister went. And so it kind of became the, the family school, but it was just, a great experience. One of my fraternity brothers, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. One of my fraternity brothers uh, said one of my favorite quotes, and he says, you know, I love Clemson because Clemson loved me first. And I think about the fact that, you know, they accepted me. I applied, I applied to, you know, a dozen places, and I got accepted to most of them. Uh, but Clemson picked me, and, you know, the time I spent there was, was amazing. And I'm just uh, glad to have been there and thankful for the relationships and the network that I've created um, there. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's cool that your whole family went there. Um, yeah. And so uh, we're going to so before you became like an investor and all that stuff uh, and, you know, had had the company bandwagon, what what companies were you at before that? 
Uh, so my first um, job out of school was um, ScanSource, the company in Greenville, South Carolina. And so I spent about a decade there. Um, and then while I was there, I started out as an intern uh, and then got them to offer me a part-time sales job, which they'd never done before. Uh, then that turned into a full-time sales job, inside sales job. And I went to product management and then to business development. And so while I was there in those like nine years, I ended up getting an MBA in the evening. So I was working all day. And then at 530, I'd race downtown to get to class by six. Uh, and then for about two and a half years, I spent doing my MBA in the evening. And in the very last course of my MBA program, um, I ended up doing this class called strategic management. And that's really like a case study class that kind of helped you focus on, you know, entrepreneurship and startups. And that's when I got the idea to, to kind of give this a shot. And so uh, bandwagon and the idea, I really dedicated the same hours I was using the MBA hours for to starting the company. So I was doing research in the evenings where I would have been in class and on weekends where I would have been doing homework, I was doing more research and product and cu uh, customer validation. Um, and then while working at ScanSource, it was just kind of like a night and weekend kind of thing. And then um, fortunately, I had an opportunity where a company um, headhunted me um, and said, hey, we'll pay you six figures and you can work from home and, and all this stuff. And so I thought it was a really great opportunity. I told them about the startup idea I had. and They said, completely OK, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and then subsequently, uh, they hired me uh, only to fire me six months later. And so um, we don't even talk about, you know, that company, I talk about the experience. Um, but it was important to me to make sure that, um, you know, they're not on my LinkedIn, they're not anywhere there, I'm sure some people figure out who it is. But for me, I think it's important to be mindful of um, who can be part of your story and who can claim part of your success. And I, I definitely, you know, hat goes off to them, because I don't know that I would have taken the full entrepreneurial leap, had I not been, you know, fired, had I not been, you know, gotten a kick in the pants, in January of 2016. Um, but here we are today, um, fortunately, because I had done the homework and de-risked the business enough to feel comfortable to tell my, you know, at the time pregnant wife, hey, I think I want to start a business because I, I don't want to ever give someone control of my ability to provide for my family. And I think that I've got something that folks could be interested in. And so um, that was really like my track record up until here um, from a, like, professional or corporate world. Of course, I had like Rack Room Shoes or Schlotsky's Deli Sandwich or, you know, worked at Radio Shacks. So I've done I've done retail, I've done fast food, I've done merchandising and shoe stores. Uh, so yeah, definitely have run the gamut when it comes to um, working careers before getting started with Bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, I uh, that's such a big leap. I mean, I, I took a leap, but it was like coming out of college with, you know, no real responsibility. So I mean, which I definitely took a leave, which congrats me, whatever. But like, you know, I couldn't imagine the the pressure of, you know, taking this the same leap I did, but then I had, you know, a pregnant wife. Yeah. Um, so definitely a huge, I mean, I don't think people, people that aren't in the entrepreneurship world don't understand that. No. Um, so tons of, tons of respect. Glad, glad it worked out. And congrats to you taking the leap too, no matter when you take it, it, it's important to be able to take that. Because the thing I think about it is, is that like I acknowledge that I'm in a position of privilege. I'm only able to take that leap because I am educated and I have a good network. And I know that if this thing doesn't go the way that we expect it to go, that I should have opportunities to reach out to folks and try and find my way back. And so I think that those of us in a position of privilege to be able to do that should do that because I think that 
um, is what we all need. We need to have those folks who can take that shot. And for those who can't, be supporters, be early customers, be um, advocates, be champions um, of those other folks, because I think uh, we're all in this together from a community standpoint. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. I could not agree more. Um, and then I was, I was curious, so you've invested in a couple different companies. Yeah. And so I'll kind of get a timeline here. Were, were those the investments before or after you started Bandwagon? Oh, definitely after. So once okay, I- Okay, make, wait, makes one more sense. <laughs> I yeah. was like, wait, how did he have the money to- Okay, got it, cool. Okay, okay. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, the thing, thing is, is like I had much more money when I was in corporate America to invest in startups. But the thing was, I just didn't know anything about it. And so now that I'm like in the startup world, I see these startups, I see the founders that are working. And as an, as an angel investor and you're writing, you know, $10,000 or $25,000 checks, um, you get to see the person who's working. You see those investor updates and you see in January, the update says they're doing this. And then in February, the update's a little better and they're showing uh, growth and they're showing that they're consistent. Um, that's where you're able to kind of tell where you're saying, hey, if I write this check and it doesn't ever come back to me, I'm okay with it because I bet on a founder or I bet on a team uh, that I knew I could trust. And, you know, if they don't make it work, that's that's more of, um, you know, how the market and kind of how this thing plays out. You know, 90% of these companies fail, but I know I can sleep well at night knowing that I, I tried to be a first yes or a first check or a first supporter. Um, and so fortunately for me, uh, given my experience now, you know, I've been running the company for more than six years. Um, now we can, or at six years, now I can look at other revenue streams, which right now my primary angel investing capital comes from uh, my consulting and speaking engagements. So anytime I'm being hired or brought out to speak somewhere, whether it's University of Iowa or Furman University or these different places, I take all of that cash and say, okay, at some point I'd like to invest um, in a startup. Normally it's a woman owned business or a minority owned business. And so that's really what my, my focus and thesis is, is going to be um, for right now. Very cool, man. That's a really cool mindset. I love I love being able to, um, I unfortunately don't have uh, nearly enough capital to do that. But if I did, I would love to not only I mean, not only an angel invest, but, um, you know, to be able to say like, this is my play money kind of in a way, you know, um, to have that extra extra side gig where you can like put it into things that you're passionate about. So that's really cool that you're able to do it. I didn't, I didn't even know you did um, keynote speaking, all that kind of stuff. So I mean, I'm not surprised in any way, but uh, good, good to know. So we'll we'll touch on those companies in a sec because the timeline's a little a uh, little shifted. So um, let's talk about like starting off bandwagon. So just to clarify, so when you were working at that company, you started thinking of creating bandwagon. You started working on it, or you I can't remember what you said. You said you were just like working on a startup. Like what what were you saying? No, so uh, ScanSource was the first company I had, uh, first job I had out of school. Um, corporate uh, America, Fortune one thousand company, headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, my intention to get my MBA was to advance in that company, was to move up the leadership chain there. But while I was there, I took that last MBA course that inspired me to consider entrepreneurship. And so at the time, um, this is from a timeline standpoint, this is May of 2014. I've just finished my MBA on May 9th. I incorporate Bandwagon LLC um, on May 11th um, and really just began focusing on understanding the secondary ticket market, understanding what consumers are willing to pay and trying to think through, is there some value that I can add and how would I be able to do so? Um, and so that's really what um, I started out with. And so in doing that, uh, I was working on the side like evenings and weekends before deciding 
that it was time to make the jump. So I think about that and saying that um, more and more folks talk about entrepreneurship and the leap that's required. And maybe a lot of folks think that they need to raise money first. And um, I think that the first thing you can do is definitely de-risk the business to yourself. And then once you've de-risked the business to yourself, then you say, okay, how do I de-risk myself to others. If you're looking for cash, if you're looking for employees, um, you need to find ways to de-risk the business. So first you de-risk the idea. Then if you realize the idea is a business, you de-risk the business, then you de-risk yourself because now you're the person that someone's going to be writing a check to for $25,000 or is going to be leaving um, a company like Google to work for you for. And so that's where you've got the, the opportunities there. And so that was really what my timeline was. So I uh, started the company in 2014, May of 2014. Uh, I took the new job at the other company the following summer in July of 2015, expecting to stay there for you know a while. Uh, bought a house. Um, we were expecting our first uh, first kid or our only kid right now. Um, and then in January of 2016, January 15th, 2016, I get canned. Uh, and so that was a bummer. That was a Friday. Um, what really sucked was like Monday of that week, Clemson lost to Alabama in the national championship. So I was. <laughs> I was in Phoenix, Arizona or Glendale, Arizona. So that was a rough start to the week and then ended the week getting fired. So that was not the greatest week. Um, so I took that weekend and uh, had a couple of cocktails to really kind of desensitize and think through what I wanted to do next and then decided I was going to go into business for myself. Um, I looked at how much money I had in severance, how much I had in savings and knew that I could drive for Uber or work third shift at Lowe's or anywhere that I could to, to make uh, some ends meet, but I knew that I was going to make sure that by the time my son arrived in August of 2016, that the company would be in a position to where, you know, my wife and I could 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 uh, survive um, there and really have some, some safe footing. And so um, he was born on August, um, August 18th, but the ribbon cutting of the business was August 16th. So we were really excited to uh, have had the timing work out that way. Um, and that was really, you know, you know, timing is never great. And so you've got to try whenever you can. No, I, and I think that last sentence is, is a good one because I, I think like, especially myself, like I try and force timing. So well. I'm like, we got to, we got to launch in winter. We got to launch in winter. And it's like, it's just going to launch when it launches. Yep. Um, and <laughs> like it's, it, and I have, um, my girlfriend and I recently broke up, but like she always would, uh, I, I would, so my, my biggest problem is I would always say like, we're going to launch August 15th, you know, and she'd be like, right. do not tell people a specific date because you're going to miss the date. And then we'd, we'd end up like adding a feature and fixing a bug. And all of a sudden it's like January 14th and we're launching and people are like, yo, didn't you say August? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that again. So, right. um, I think that, that's a good lesson for sure. Yep. Um, yep. So, um, how did you, how did you land your first customer? You mentioned it was, uh, uh, Sacramento state. Mm-hmm. Boom. Got it. So, uh, how did you land your first customers? Like you have this idea, you know, ribbon cutting kids born and then like, what, what are you even doing from there? Yeah. So, um, when we decided to pivot in the end of 2017, we knew that our customers weren't going to be everyday fans and Americans and people on my social media network. And so that was that was the easier part. Back when we were a marketplace, we knew people were looking for tickets. And so we'd say, hey, like if you're looking for tickets to the Clemson game or the Georgia game or the South Carolina game, go to our website and you'll see hundreds and thousands of tickets. Uh, that was easy. 
Um, now, when it got to me trying to work with a university or a large event organizer, now you got to get more and more people's approval and more and more people's buy off because the price tag is significantly higher. And so the first customer, Sacramento State, um, I'm fortunate uh, we've done a lot of different podcasts over the years. One of them um, is the sports style with us with Troy Kirby. And so I was listening to his podcast like I did all the time. And one of the guests for that week was the athletic director um, at Sacramento State. His name is Marcus Jennings. And he was basically talking about exactly what we were trying to solve for. He was saying that they didn't know who were in the venue on the day of the event. They weren't really able to tell who their fans were in the stadium. And they wanted to do a better job of connecting and engaging with their, their fans. And so I literally sent him a, a, a Twitter. Um, it was either a DM or a tweet. I can't remember. But I sent him a tweet. And I was like, hey, like, I just heard your episode of the podcast. I'd love to help. This is what my company does. And he says, oh, well, next time you're in the area, like, feel free to come on by Sacramento. And I was in San Francisco at the time. And this tells you how bad I was with geography. I was like, oh, I'm down the street. Like, can I come by, like, later this afternoon? And he says, oh, yeah, sure. And so I was like, great. I'll just pop over to Sa Sacramento. And I look it up. And I was like, oh, this is, like, two and a half hours away from San Francisco. Um, I'm going to need, like, a rental car. So I rent, like, one of these Fiat 500s or one of these, like, mini tiny cars because it was super cheap. Um, and I drove over there. I feel that. <laughs> oh yeah. So I, jump, so I jump in this little um, this little car, drive over there, and just talk to them about like you know what's the challenges they're having and what are their goals for the athletic department season. Um, and really, it was just a great opportunity to like get transparent feedback from a customer that knew that a we weren't trying to sell them in that moment. B if we were, we weren't going to charge them what we like would want to charge our customer you know, when we're, you know, three years or five years down the road, it was going to be like an early customer discount. And then two, it was just, and then lastly, it was just an opportunity to listen. Like it was just, you know, you do as much research as you can before you get to a customer. And then when you finally get one on the phone or in a meeting with one, um, you can find that they may, they may share information that completely supports everything that you were researching or completely discredits everything you're researching. And so it was a great opportunity to validate a lot of what we saw in the marketplace um, and they were willing to take a shot with us. Um, President Nelson, um, uh, Mark Orr, uh, Athletic Director Mark Orr, they, they green-lighted it and gave us a chance there. Uh, one of our board members, Kwame Anku, um, serves, uh, serves there um, for their entrepreneurship ecosystem. And really, all those folks were helping pull in the right direction to help us uh, green-light and test with uh, Sacramento State when we first got it going. That's cool. And, and so when you're in that meeting, I mean, because um, I, I can relate to your situation. I can't say that I closed the deal, but I mean, <laughs> like you're sitting there and there's there's StubHub, there's a billion other things. And obviously you were able to close the deal. So it's like, what are you saying? Like, what are you, you know, obviously he, he has some pain points, but like, how do you with no with no like, um you know, uh, sports teams, no colleges at the time kind of convince him that you should work together? Yeah, I think that the thing that really pushed them over the edge was that I told them, hey, look, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. I flew to San Francisco and drove to Sacramento to sit in your office for 45 minutes. Um, so part of it was really just to say, like, I'm going to pay attention to this. Like, this wasn't like I was talking to the New York Knicks or Coachella, where everyone would love to have them as a customer. Um, this was a small college in Northern California um, that we're spending complete attention um, and time focusing on how we help them solve a problem. So I think that early on as entrepreneurs, we need to find not only customers that have 
the challenge or the problem that we're trying to solve and have that pain acutely. It's very specific, uh, but also be willing to think through um, the folks who are willing to take the risk. Like some folks have the pain problem and some and, and, and aren't willing to try to solve it. Um, we were fortunate that they were willing to try to solve it. And so we say, hey, listen, we just want a chance to learn with you. And if we have an opportunity to learn with you, I think that you all will be better for it. We definitely know that we'll be better for it. And at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're, build, we're building a product that next year you all will be willing to pay us for um, and so or pay us full price for. So if you're willing to give us a shot with this, um, we think we'll be able to learn a lot together and hope that uh, hope that that insight that we help you um, gather will will be actionable and create some real waves within your organization. And that's kind of how we got the deal done. Love it, man. Very cool. Very, uh, very inspiring, man. That's awesome. And so if you mentioned this, I can cut this out, but like, where, where did the initial idea come from? Was it, and maybe, maybe it was like, was from like StubHub not being as good as you wanted them to, but like, was it like an epiphany you had one day? Like, where were you at when you had that initial idea? I'm trying to think. So when I first came up with the idea for bandwagon, I think that I was thinking through the fact that if you look at your keyboard right now, um, you'll see like G and H are right next to each other. But if you just put your finger on G, you'll notice that like the only keys that are close to it are like five or six other keys, right? And so I thought about that in the magnitude of the stadium. So I've been to these different sport events. And if you're sitting in a seat, the people to your left, your right, the two people in front of you, the two people behind you are probably the folks you're most likely going to engage with. Um, and I found that you've got these different experiences where no matter how the event was going, whether it was um, your team wins or your team loses, you were able to connect with folks because you were pulling for the same team. And I really love that like camaraderie and the opportunity in experiencing the home field advantage. Uh, and ultimately I found that when it came to StubHub and secondary markets, you just couldn't control it. Like if you listed two tickets, they were likely going to be sold and bought by the other team. And so that was where I was just like, well, if we can find a way to create better fan communities inside of the venues, then this will make the experience better. I thought about the uh, fan who was attacked at the, I think it was the Dodgers and San Francisco Giants game years and years ago. And I thought about the violence that's happened there. I think about all the different issues you have with fan bases um, and alcohol being involved and some of these other challenges where you've got uh, a lot of aggression and a lot of stuff. So I thought, well, how can we create a better experience for the home fans? How do you create a better experience for the away fans? And so that's where we said, okay, we're going to go with this. Um, we came up with the name uh, primarily because when we looked at um, bandwagon in Google, LeBron James images and LeBron James hits kept coming up. And I was just like, oh, that's kind of funny. I get it. Like they're saying that fans of LeBron James are bandwagon fans because they went from Cleveland to, to Miami. And so I thought, well, if I should name the company bandwagon, because maybe one day um, we'll be associated with LeBron James. And so maybe he'll be an investor. Maybe he'll be a partner. And so we'd love to have our name next to his name next to these fans. And so that's how we originally started it, saying um, this could be an opportunity for us to kind of position ourselves well. So that's how the idea started. And that's how we came up with the name. Very cool, man. No, I love that. I love that future mindset for sure. That's awesome. Uh, well, uh, I can't promise you that LeBron's listening, but I can't tell you that he doesn't listen. Right. Um, so with that being said, LeBron, if you're listening, uh, you know, you got a, a, a cool company to invest in here. Yeah, come through. So, uh, come through. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you have bandwagon, bandwagon 
wait, yeah, bandwagonfanclub.com and experienceaura.io. So can you explain the difference between the two of those? Because I know they're kind of linked to each other. Yeah, definitely. So Bandwagon is the name of the company. Uh, the official name is Bandwagon Fan Club Inc. Uh, we just you know do business as a bandwagon. Uh, and so when we started out the business, we were focused specifically on sports. Uh, but as we grew and built the product, we realized it was really for any ticketed live event, whether that's Broadway or festivals or concerts. Uh, and so we said, okay, well, let's look at those markets. Um, with sports, we found that the seasonality, i.e. Uh, the timelines on which we when we could sell and when we couldn't, uh, were very specific and rigid. And so the NBA season runs from a certain time to a certain time, NFL, same. And so we would always be kind of playing around that calendar for the sports calendar. But when it came to all these other live events, there's no um, there's no limit to those. We could find customers every day. And so we wanted to make sure we had a product that allowed us to be more agnostic. And so Bandwagon came across as a very sports-specific uh, type title. And so we created Aura as our flagship product. So Bandwagon is still the name of the company. Um, but when we reach out to these different organizations, we can say, we want you to use our flagship product, Aura, which is used not only which is not only using proprietary blockchain technology, but also some some industry know-how on how we're aggregating information and giving you insight into who's in your venue on the day of the event, as well as information about that user to help you um, really take the next step in delighting and engaging them. And so that's where we created Aura. We worked with a brand, a branding company out of New York City called Family Meal, um, and launched that brand. Uh, actually, I think it was about a year ago today was when we got it got it out. Um, right as we were finishing the IBM Blockchain Accelerator, so we launched Aura to kind of allow ourselves to have a product that would be focused on any ticketed live event organizer, from sports to festivals to concerts to Broadway, um, to be able to use our product. And and from there, we really uh, dialed in on the strategy that we're going to continue to have product lines that solve specific challenges for specific businesses that are all built on our underlying tech and core of what we're focusing on, which is identity. So when we look at what Bandwagon is today, we're an identity infrastructure company where Aura is our solution for fan identity and uh, attendee engagement. Um, and then we're going to continue to build out brands and products that focus on these specific industries. Um, and so that's really how we kind of differentiate between the two. Very cool. And so what is, uh, what is your thinking behind um, making the bandwagon Twitter uh, lead, lead to experience.io instead of uh, the bandwagon website? Yeah, because right now that was really the biggest thing. We wanted to capture a broad, a broad scope of it. Um, so really looking at how wide we can go. We're actually also looking at uh, getting a new Twitter handle because I think bandwagon ticks was really um, something that focused primarily on the ticketing space when we launched it, you know, five and a half, six years ago. Um, so now really looking at like, okay, what is the right Twitter handle for our engagement um, on that side? Um, fortunately for us, a lot of our company engagement doesn't come through Twitter. And so that isn't as big of a challenge um, as far as like redirecting messaging. Um, a lot of that's LinkedIn from a company standpoint. Whereas for me, uh, people are talking to me constantly on Twitter. Uh, and so I'm primarily the face for the company on Twitter, whereas the company takes a stronger position on LinkedIn where I'm not as active. Gotcha. Yeah, no, and I and I figured it wasn't like you know your your uh, you know like a super important part of your business, but I, I was just I was just curious from when I went to there myself when I was doing research for this. Um, and so uh, we'll kind of we'll kind of touch on angel investing really quick, and then come back to um, come back to bandwagon. But uh, yeah. so this was a question I I put in the the questions that I sent over to you. It's, it's something that I've always been curious about. I've always wanted to 
I mean, it's kind of dumb, but I've always wanted to, you know, be successful, crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always wanted to have a really good exit um, and be able to like, you know, become an angel investor. You know, my, my eventual goal is to be one of the sharks on Shark Tank. I think that'd be really cool. So, I mean, one thing I was thinking about is so like you raised about $2 million for your startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then while you're doing that, you're angel investing. And so this people do this all the time, but I've just never asked about this. So like, how do you feel comfortable, like, you know, going to angels asking them to invest their money into your own company when you are angel investing into other companies. And again, it's not like you're the first person to ever do it. Every founder does it, but like, um, you know, did they, did they bring that up? And like, if, or like, how about this? If I was an angel investor and I said like, why should I invest in you when you're investing in other companies? Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that there's two things. Number one, um, most of our investors are investing not only in, me and the team, but the idea and the market that we're going into. Um, And so they're looking and evaluating what we've been able to do with what we've had and what the future looks like for us. Um, But when it comes to investing in other companies, the bigger thing is, is really looking at, can we walk and chew bubble gum? Like, can we do more than one thing at once? Um, So if, if we've ever, you know, we've never had an angel or any investor be concerned about my use of capital my personal use of capital uh, because we've been really consistent about how we've supported the company. Um, you know, I sold my townhouse to keep the company going in 2017. Um, I bankrolled the company from 2014 through closing our round in 2016 when we closed our first angel round. Um, and so if, if any angel or any investor were to call into question the amount of capital that I put into the business, um, I don't think I would ever have an issue like being able to confirm that I put a good bit of money into it. Um, but really just trying to think through more about the opportunities that I have. I think that uh, angel investing specifically, um, if you can't be a startup founder, so I think that startup founding is one, but everyone can't start a, start a business. Um, but then two, when it comes to angel investing, that's another way that you can have the opportunity to have generational wealth and generational impact um, when you talk about these changes. And so um, I think that being able to, to diversify my opportunities for my family um, is definitely important. And I think that uh, any wise investor would see that as an important opportunity as well. Um, and so long as you're not paying yourself, you know, $200,000 and then investing 100 of it, uh, that, that would be a challenge, right? Uh, so make sure you're not putting the same money together. You're using separate income or you're paying yourself a market rate or maybe slightly below market rate income or salary. I think that those things don't ever become an issue. But overall, I'm a huge advocate for early stage uh, investing, um, which is why I'm uh, one of these uh, champions of what equity crowdfunding is doing uh, with Republic, for example. We did an equity crowdfunding campaign on it, not because we thought we were going to raise you know millions of dollars, but because we wanted to give access uh, to you know hundreds hundreds of people to learn about early stage investing and have the opportunity to level up their understanding for the space and maybe figure out that they have an appetite for it and that they're willing to invest a couple thousand dollars a year into some of these startups. And so really excited about some of the work that Republic's doing and um, you know, happy with what Martha Miller and her office at the uh, SEC is working on to help increase the opportunities for um, angel investors all over the country. Uh, but I think that when it comes down to can you run a business and be an early stage investor, I think you can absolutely do the best 
of both um, if you are being transparent with your investors and really sharing the fact that, um, you know, you, you've been all in. And so that's what I'm happy to do. So I, I don't have any issues with it. Um, and I think that's how every founder should probably approach it. And if you're an investor that's concerned about that, I think it probably isn't the right deal for you to make. Yeah, absolutely. And you've invested in a couple different companies. And I think it's really cool that you have, uh, you know, the little angel emoji in your Twitter bio, and then you have, you know, the companies that you've invested in. So can you kind of talk about Partake, uh, Partake Foods and then Hire Canna and then why you invested in them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Partake Foods is my first angel investment. I'm super excited uh, for them. Uh, the founder, Denise Woodard, and I met at a Google for Startups program uh, back in 2017 um, and had the opportunity to invest uh, last year. And it's been really great. I think about the fact that she started a company uh, to really focus on how you could help have access to food that all kids can eat and all adults really can eat. Um, even given, you know, these uh, really uh, growing uh, allergies, food allergies. And so Partake Foods actually makes cookies that are free of the top eight food allergens. And she made it because it was a, a specific need in their own household. And she went from selling cookies out of her trunk to, you know, leaving a, a career at Coca-Cola to doing this full time uh, to going through the Google program. And then now has raised money from, you know, Jay-Z. Um, and, cool. and his venture fund. And so I'm super, yeah, super excited to like even be on that journey with her. Um, I definitely asked and, you know, for the longest, you know, we've always just had a friendship and kind of peer mentorship and I could call her and ask for feedback and she could call me and ask for feedback. And one day I was just like, Hey, what's the like smallest check you would take? And she's like, Oh, for you? Like, yeah, I would do this. And as we were going on and on, I was just like, I don't want to do that. I want to see if I can get more money. And so I was fortunate to actually be able to, um, land a larger speaking gig so I could write a bigger check. But also I brought one of my angel investors into her deal. Um, and so I was able to not only, you know, going back to your previous question, not only are my angel investors like cool with what I'm doing in that regard, but some of them are interested in like looking at the deals that I'm looking at. And so I was able to bring one of my angel investors into that deal and that worked out really well. And since then I brought her another investor and, and try and help any way that I can, but she's a phenomenal founder um, she's committed to what, what the, the mission of the business is. The product tastes great. And so, yeah, I'm happy to like write that check and forget about it. And we'll just see what happens, um, you know, down the road for her. Yeah. I love that. It's just, you know, it's like, uh, how do I get to be a co-investor with Jay-Z? <laughs> like I mean, that's, that's right. Exactly. Well, listen, like this is, it's, it's the, it's the long game. It's like, how do I get on the Brock, on the rock nation brunch list? Exactly. Foods. Like that's, that's it. Um, and then similarly, when I looked at uh, Canna, Canna was a different situation, but it was similar in how I decided. Um, I was a mentor for DivInc, um, a diversity um, focused accelerator here in Austin, Texas that focuses on women and people of color um, that are building businesses. And I was a mentor in the program, so I got to see a lot of the businesses. And so one of them just really stood out to me. The founder was always online and always working. And um, you could tell that he was scrappy and creative. Uh, he had had a previous venture that didn't go the way he wanted it to. And so um, had a little bit of the battle scars there. But you could tell that based on that, it changed his perspective on how to view his own business. Uh, and so learned a little bit about Canna and thinking about the fact that um, the cannabis industry is blowing up right now. Uh, and because of that blowing up, 
the jobs being created in the cannabis space are so uh, are so significant, but the challenges is being able to find them and being able to vet them and be able to train them. Um, and so we really loved uh, Canna specifically because we saw it as a cannabis company, but was leaning into it in a different way. This isn't, you know, buying land or, you know, a dispensary or something like that. This was a training and education platform that was going to not only uh, create the gig worker um, marketplace for the cannabis industry, but was also going to be the industry leader on training and certifying of them. And I thought that those two things together, uh, if they were able to move fast, would be a great opportunity to really carve out um, some space for themselves. And they've been doing really, really well. Um, actually brought my same angel investor who did the Partake deal into that deal as well, um, as well as my brother. So it was the first deal that my brother and I have been able to do. And so we did that, I think, earlier this year. Really happy with what Farhaj and his team are doing um, and excited to see what happens from here. Absolutely, man. And I, I love Farhaj. So uh, that's the one that connected us. And episode 52 of the We Strive podcast, you got Farhaj if you want to hear his story as well. Um, and I think he, I don't think he mentions you by name, but I think he talks of you in the episodes. I can't remember. Um, it was, a, it was a little while ago. So but, okay. well, I, yeah, I appreciate him and Z and the entire team. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so what, what do you think makes you, a, or what do you think makes a, a good angel investor? Um, I think the biggest thing that I contribute as an angel investor is that I'm like a product champion. Or I, I'm a so when you think about um, the tipping point, the Marcus Gladwell book, or the Michael, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell book, um, you think about the various types of people. You got the salesperson, the maven, and all that, the connector. Um, I'm a connector. Uh, I think that by not only finding out about these businesses and learning about the founders and the teams, as well as the problems and uh, challenges they're trying to help uh, folks solve, that I'm the right person to try and connect them with different folks to help them get access to capital, access to resources, even if they just need to be a, uh, need me to be transparent and give feedback or a shoulder to cry on or to vent to. So I think that the fact that I've been in the trenches and that I'm here and in a lot of cases, I'm two or three years ahead of some of these companies um, from like the things we've experienced, that gives me the edge as an angel investor to be able to say, this is how we'd have the opportunity to really help this founder. Um, we, I've seen all these different um, venture scout programs that we were hoping to be able to get into, um, one of them in particular, uh, last fall and didn't get into it because I thought it would be really cool to have access to more capital so that I could focus on more founders that are in this network that I have. Uh, but it's just going to take a little slower start. Uh, I think that you know, me investing some money I have on the side is always going to be good, uh, but be, really being able to um, create opportunities for you know, these founders is going to be important uh, for me throughout the journey of my life. And so I'm excited to be an angel and to be able to do these deals. I'm, my goal is to do uh, about two, two deals a year. And so that's really the plan that we're going to be kicking off. That's incredible, man. I mean, hopefully uh, we'll be co-sharks someday. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the goal. We'll get Farhaj up there too. Um, yeah. So this has been really cool, man. Uh, apologize for the, the Wi-Fi connection there, but uh yeah, I um, I was one one last question here. What's what's like a big piece of advice you have for future startup founders? Uh, the biggest piece of advice that I can give is probably the one that I give the most often, which is um, to start with transparency and lead with collaboration. Um, oftentimes, we find that entrepreneurs try and 
um, withhold information out of fear that someone's going to steal their idea or withhold information because they're not sure how it's going to be perceived. Um, I think that the more transparent that you are as a startup founder, the greater the opportunity you'll have for folks to be willing to help you and be able to help you. Um, on top of that, when I think about collaboration, um, I think about the fact that some of the best ideas that your business will need may not come directly out of your head or they may not come, you know, independently of, you know, talking to other people. So I think that by leaning in and engaging more folks into the conversation, you can really move faster. Uh, you can avoid pitfalls that you may not have seen. You, you may avoid blind spots that you have personally. Uh, and so you, know, you think about, you know, NDAs or non-disclosure agreements that founders may try and start a conversation with, you know, put, put that stuff away, you know, think through how do I articulate my business and the challenge that we're trying to solve. Um, without sharing trade secrets and really be transparent and then look for help. And, and lastly, I would say give first. Uh, if you can give, I think that um, that really opens the door for people to be willing to trust. And uh, so I try and be very generous in giving of my time and focus on time blocking so that not only am I spending time, you know, on my startup as well as, you know, being a dad and a husband, but also like how do I help mentor or how do I help advise companies? Or how do I help just give insights or even share my journey? I think the sharing of our journeys is really interesting. I think that as a Black founder, um, there's a transformative power in transparent storytelling. And oftentimes you see the TechCrunch article or you see the social media activity, but you don't really see all the blood, sweat, and tears that kind of goes on behind it. And so hopefully for anyone that's following me on social media or seeing any of the stuff about us, you're going to see some of the ups and downs and some of the challenges. And I think that that part's important because I think that the grit and the resolve that's necessary to be a startup founder is really made in those low times. And so when we think about what's going on with COVID-19 and, and all this right now, I think that you're really going to see, um, you know, some founders who are going to be fire forged and uh, that's going to be great. That's going to be great for 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. I think yeah, just transparency and like kind of just showing showing the actual like uh, path you take. I mean, I actually uh, I don't like saying followers because my entire Instagram following is like ninety nine percent my friends. Um, so mm -hmm. I, uh, but my friends have seen over the years uh, just every step of the shit show of a journey we strive has been. Um, just right. every every you know. I'll give a pitch and like my, my zipper will be down or like, you know, just that kind of stuff just over the years. And so um, it's funny because sometimes, sometimes I'll post, uh, I'll post something, um, you know, about like my valuation or something like that. And someone who has no business knowing anything about startups or my company will be like, isn't that a low valuation for your company after blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how does this person, <laughs> it's like, well, it's because they've been following right. the journey. So I think that on my personal page, I share the journey. On my company page, you see branding and marketing and press releases and all that other stuff. And so I think that that part's important. Um, I think that, like, for example, Partake does a fantastic job on Instagram. So they're just Partake Foods on Instagram. Their story is is amazing. Every picture is perfect. Every, every caption, everything is very well thought out and intentional. Then if you um, follow Denise, who's not as active on social media, she'll chime in and say, like, Today, I thought I was going to get a lot done, but I've been with my daughter today, or we are hand packing all of these packages because something went left. And so we're rolling up our sleeves and getting it done. And so I think that there's an importance in separating you and the founder and the story from 
the business and what the business is doing from a marketing standpoint. And so that's how I kind of separate them. And I think that that could be a, a good jumping off point deciding like, should I post this or should the company's, what, company's accounts post this to really kind of tell that story? I, I totally agree. I, I, I will and I won't. I won't do this just because of what I'm about to say, but like, I really do think, um, like my followers, I have people all the time message me. Like, I seriously think it's so funny that this happened or like, that's such a, like I said before, like people literally know so much about my, my own company, um, because of the stories that I share. And I, I won't do it because of like, like you mentioned, like, you know, it has to be, you know, branding and marketing professional, but I really do think like there's an alternate timeline where like I, post all of my pitfalls and all the funny stories that I have on my, on my we strive, uh, app page. And I think we have a much better engagement because of it. Cause I think like our trainers can like kind of, but then at the same time, it's like, I don't want our trainers seeing like all the stupid stuff I'm doing, you know? So it's like, right. There's probably something in there that has like a really cool startup reality TV show vibe that I should be doing. But again, like, yeah, I, it's, it's so hard to be professional while showing all that stuff though. Well, well, one of the greatest things that I have seen has definitely been um, the pitch and what they were been able to do when they were acquired by Gimlet Media. Um, solid TV show, guys. solid show. That was solid show. But then, in an even bigger way, if you look at Gimlet Media, so the startup podcast and like how he started a startup, how he started a podcast startup by making a startup about it, like that was wild and super meta. Um, and then he kind of, sh- he showed the challenges that they had from diversity to hiring to everything like that, but then they continued to build the business. So I thought that, you know, obviously that story went really, really well where they ended up, you know, exiting to, um, Spotify, which is amazing. And that's a deal that I missed out on because I listened to the episode late. Um, and so I didn't invest <laughs> in that episode in that company, um, so you think about those opportunities, uh, I think that some brands are able to tell that story and do both really well. So I would definitely think there's a way to consider doing it. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, I, I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, so, uh, Harold, it was really nice to meet you, man. I'm excited to see how Bandwagon pivots and how you guys look come like mid to late. I mean, who knows, maybe 2022 at this point. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys do. I really appreciate you taking the time, man. And, um, Wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me and good luck. I'll be uh, rooting for you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You'll be my bandwagon fan. There you go. There you go. You nailed it. See, that was a lob and you, alley-oop right there. Appreciate you. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks again to everyone who's listening now for season three. This isn't a huge podcast by any means, but we just hit another 10,000 downloads for season two. To be honest, I'm just really glad that people are coming back and listening to multiple episodes and telling me about them. It's just, it's just exciting for me. I've been able to meet the coolest people. I've had some of the most incredible conversations, and I've honestly learned a lot. Had it not been for entrepreneurship, I wouldn't have met any of these people. And I can officially say that I've completed over 60 amazing podcast interviews. Let's keep them coming. Uh, don't forget to download the We Strive app. Leave us five stars if you can. And if you're a personal trainer, be sure to sign up at train.westriveapp.com. Thanks again for all your support. Subscribe if you can. And have an incredible week. We strive.